The following sermon was delivered by Associate Pastor Kate Dunn during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Reverend Dunn. Please pray with me. Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is a long scripture passage, but don't worry. I'm not going to read the whole thing, and I'm going to break it up. So I hope you won't find your eyes glazing over. Just to set some context here, let me remind you that the book of Acts is volume two of the Gospel of Luke. That is easy to overlook as our New Testament places John's Gospel in between Luke's two Gospels. In volume one, Luke recounts the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In volume two, Luke recounts how the movement of the Spirit gives birth to the church through the acts of apostles like Peter, Barnabas, Silas, and Paul. The stories in Acts follow the apostles' journeys throughout Judea and Samaria, Syria, Galatia, and Europe, as they share the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection through their own ministries of healing and preaching and worship. They baptize new Christians, establish house churches, and encourage these communities of faith to grow in Christian love. Today's scripture finds Paul and Silas in the first European city that Paul evangelized, Philippi in Macedonia. In the section immediately preceding today's scripture, Paul and Silas went to the river to pray on the Sabbath. There they found themselves conversing with a group of women, including Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman who asked Paul to baptize her entire household and then encouraged Paul and Silas to accept her hospitality while they remained in town, which they did. A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 16, beginning with the 16th verse. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. But Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in, attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. 
after they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. The phrase, no good deed goes unpunished, which has been attributed to Oscar Wilde, Andrew Mellon, Noel Coward, and Claire Booth Luce, to name just a few, continues to resonate today. It speaks to an experience people have when a well-intentioned action brings unintended consequences that can feel like punishment for simply having tried to do the right thing. In his heartbreaking novel, Little Faith, Nicholas Butler recounts the story of an older couple whose daughter gets caught up in a cult-like church run by a charming charlatan preacher. This preacher convinces the daughter not only that her five-year-old son is a faith healer, but that prayer alone can manage the boy's diabetes. Anxious to stay as connected as possible to their daughter and grandson for fear of losing them completely to this cult, the couple try to love and support her unconditionally. However, when the boy's health becomes dangerously unstable, the grandfather barges into the prayer circle around the boy's bed and whisks him off to the hospital, where the boy remains in a diabetic coma. Not only does his intervention appear to come too late, the boy's mother now blames the grandfather's lack of faith for the boy's critical condition and refuses to let him have any further contact with her or her son. That's an agonizing consequence for this man who was trying to save his grandson's life. I suspect that most of us have at one time or another felt like a helpless witness to another person's suffering. Whether someone we care about is trapped in domestic violence, lost in the throes of addiction, stifled in a toxic job environment, caught in a frightening cycle of unemployment, or living with untreated physical or mental illness, we may find ourselves wondering what, if anything, we could or should do. At what point are we supposed to act, and how? Should we stay in our own lane or reach out and try to help? Is it in our power to make this situation better, or could we unintentionally make it worse? Either way, are we prepared to live with the consequences of our actions or our inactions? As our story begins this morning, Paul and Silas seem to be enjoying their time in Philippi. They have found a group of believers whose faith they encourage and strengthen. They have been welcomed into Lydia's home, and she is providing for their needs. There's only one problem. The slave girl, who is possessed by a spirit, follows them wherever they go, shouting, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. Now, while some people might have appreciated this free advertising, 
and been grateful to the slave girl for drawing the crowd's attention to them. Paul and Silas do not seem to consider shouting at bystanders about God and salvation, their preferred mode of evangelism. Perhaps they consider this girl's ceaseless harangue to be counterproductive to their cause. Those among us who have been stuck on a subway car with someone hollering about Jesus may be able to relate to that feeling. Yet, Paul lets this girl's behavior go on for days. Why? Perhaps he understands that the slave girl cannot control what she says. Perhaps he pities her. Perhaps he wrestles with what might be the best thing for this girl, to be freed from the spirit but worth less to her owners who make money off her divination ability, or to remain possessed by the spirit but valued in a home in which she otherwise has no power or status at all. If faced by a bitter choice, which freedom is better, that of the soul or the body? Ultimately, Paul decides that freedom of the soul is of greater value, and he does what it is in his power to do. Paul frees the slave girl from the possession of this spirit. Unfortunately, Paul does not have any power to free her from the people who own her. These people have now seen the value of this girl. They consider their property plummet, and they are mad. We don't hear anything more about this girl. We don't know what happens to her. But we do know what happens to Paul and Silas. The slave girl's owners, furious at finding their source of revenue gone, complain about the apostles to the crowd and to the law, but they do so in a roundabout way. Rather than admit they're upset that they could no longer make money off the slave girl, they appeal to their fellow citizens' national pride and bigotry. These men are Jews, they say, and they're practicing strange customs and not adapting to Roman ways. They are different. They are foreigners. They are troublemakers. It doesn't take much to stir up a mob, and the magistrates concur. Paul and Silas are stripped and beaten and thrown into the innermost prison and shackled there. The story continues. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. It is utter darkness. In the innermost recesses of the prison, Paul and Silas cannot see. Bound by shackles, they cannot move. The air is stale and dank, smelling of filth and blood and fear. Surrounded by other prisoners who also cannot see and cannot move, they are trapped. They can do nothing to change their situation. Well, almost nothing. Ever since the shepherd boy who would become King David played his harp to calm the agitation of King Saul, the world has known that music soothes the soul. Perhaps that's why we continue to be so moved by stories like the eight-man band on the Titanic that kept on playing while the ship went down, 
doing what it was in their power to do to offer comfort and solace to their fellow passengers in that dark and terrifying midnight hour. We know that the feeling of being trapped by forces outside our control, whether physically or mentally, produces a sense of high anxiety in most people. Patients who wake up mechanically ventilated in the intensive care unit with a tube inserted down their throat to help them breathe often experience extreme anxiety and require heavy sedation. In recent years, some hospitals have been introducing music into their ICUs. A chaplain friend of mine shared her experience of watching a very agitated patient relax almost immediately when a harpist came into the room and started playing. After this experience, she recalled visiting another patient, also intubated, in which no harpist was present. Though she doesn't consider herself much of a public singer, she began singing Amazing Grace at this bedside and found that even her unprofessional music skills seemed to bring about an immediate and notable reduction in the patient's agitation. Music truly does have the power to calm and to heal. I've heard more times than I can count people tell me that what really draws them to church is not the sermon, but the music. Not just the amazing choral singing of our choir, but the opportunity to sing hymns together with others. We are heirs of the apostles, the earliest followers of Jesus for whom music was an essential spiritual ingredient in creating communities founded on love and care and hope. That is why, in the inner recesses of that prison, to fend off their own panic, pain, and despair, and perhaps to do what it was in their power to do to ease the suffering of their fellow prisoners in the dark, Paul and Silas prayed and sang hymns at midnight. Can a community that music brings together be a community of liberation and hope? According to our scripture passage, that's exactly what happens. Suddenly there was an earthquake, so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced that he had come, become a believer in God. This entire scripture passage shows Paul and Silas in the act of creating community by responding to the needs of the people directly in front of them, to the best of their ability, given the resources at their disposal. 
They accept Lydia's hospitality, free the slave girl from the spirit's control, sing hymns to their fellow prisoners, remain in prison to save their jailer's life, and in the morning when they are released from prison, they hold the magistrates accountable for the violations they committed, insisting on a formal apology from the powers that be, which they get. In all that they do, they demonstrate the healing, liberating, hope-giving power of prayer and song. Two years ago, Seamus Campbell, our director of outreach, stopped outside the Kirkland Chapel, arrested by the sound of a choir practice. Making his way to the chapel balcony, he watched the Dallas Street Choir perform, rehearse for their performance that evening at Carnegie Hall. This choir, he learned, is made up primarily of people who live in Dallas, in city shelters, or on the streets. According to the choir's vision statement, the group's goal is to create, through music and regular weekly choir practice, a community that offers compassion and hope. What would something like that look like here in New York City? As many of you know, we are embarking on year three of our ecumenical outreach partnership, the joint ministry we engage in with our sister churches, St. Patrick's Cathedral and St. Thomas Episcopal, to reach out to our neighbors living on the streets around our churches. Through our work together, we seek to provide friendship, access to social services, a safe, caring community, and hope for the future. We also seek to recognize the incredible strength and spiritual resources these neighbors have to offer us as well. And we strive to be open for the Spirit to move in our midst in surprising and challenging and life-giving ways. As we look at the year ahead and seek to prayerfully discern how God is calling our faith communities to use our time, talent, and resources, we have found ourselves asking, and we invite you to ponder with us, what role could music play in this ministry of healing. In 1971, composer Gavin Bryars was working on a documentary film about people experiencing homelessness in some of the rougher areas of London. One piece of footage didn't make it into the film. It was a recording of a man who for many long years had made his home on the streets of London and spent much of that time singing this song over and over. So 
When Briars played this unused section of tape at home, he improvised a simple accompaniment and made a tape loop. At a recording studio adjacent to a large painting studio, he left the piece recording on a continuous reel of tape and went out for coffee. When he returned, he found the people in the studio listening to the recording. They were subdued, moving quietly, sitting still. Some of them were weeping. Briars realized that he had stumbled onto something with an uncanny spiritual power. He created an orchestral accompaniment to the singing, which he wanted to share with the singer. Unfortunately, the man died before he could hear it, but you can go on YouTube and hear this man's soulful voice and Briars' accompaniment for yourself. This simple hymn sustained the man who sang it throughout what we can only imagine was a life that had a good share of difficulty and isolation and pain. For more than 40 years since then, this hymn has touched a place of deep spiritual longing in the hearts of those who hear it. Just as the hymns of Paul and Silas brought comfort and hope and liberation to themselves and their fellow prisoners. Sometimes a preacher is reduced to stating a simple and obvious truth. Music is a gift from God, a gift to all of God's creation. Music has the power to heal individuals and heal communities. As the prophet Isaiah declares, a day will come when you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Music heals. Music liberates. Music finds a way to throw open doors and bring in light and break down barriers and comfort grief and nourish joy. Even in situations that feel as hopeless and terrifying as a dark, prison cell at midnight. What music fills up your spiritual treasure chest? What music will you cling to in your midnight hour? What music will you share with your neighbors in their time of need? And now, friends, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and always. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, FAPC.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646 491 8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646 491 8331. Thank you and God bless.